Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. This is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the word of the living God. So Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get such things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And then he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons, anointed many with oil who were sick, and they healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to gather together to worship you. And we know that even through the ordinary means of participating in worship, looking at your word, fellowshipping together, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, coming before your throne of grace and prayer, partaking the sacraments, that you work through these ordinary means in supernatural ways. And so we pray that you'll do that this morning, that you'll transform our hearts, that you'll help us to rest and live out of your grace even more, produce more kindness and humility and joy in our lives that really will be a testimony, a shining light to a broken and hurting world that Jesus, you really are the only true king. It's in your name I pray, amen. Well, for those of you that I don't know, I grew up in the small town of Mullins, South Carolina. In case you didn't know, I was southern already from my accent. My lifelong best friend in Mullins, small farming town, his name's Splinter, his brother is named Stump, cousin Spider, nephew Briar. A lot of the guys have already met them. A couple of them came on our men's retreat, and they are as good salt-of-the-earth people as you'll ever meet. And they all live on the family farm in Mullins, outside of Mullins in the country, actually. And I keep up with Splinter. We talk every week. He coaches football in our hometown. And every time I'm on the phone with Splinter, not on speakerphone, just talking to him, my girls will inevitably, especially Mary Rachel, will say, can I say hey to Splinter? And I'll say, well, how how do you know it's Splinter? And then my girls always say, Dad, every time you talk to Splinter or anybody from Mullins, you turn into Country Mullins Matt. I don't need you to tell me afterwards that I'm always Country Mullins, Matt. I guess I'm more so when I'm talking to them than I even realize. And we were there this summer, 
and we were visiting, hanging out, and Splinter's oldest son um, was lobbying. He just graduated high school, getting ready to go play college basketball, and he's lobbying his parents for a tattoo. And so he's like, why can't I get a tattoo? Uncle Matt's got a tattoo, and he's arguing, thinking he's got a great point, and finally Splinter says, buddy, listen, you're 18, you can do what you want, but you don't have to convince us, you gotta convince grandma. So the next morning, grandma comes over, we're having breakfast, we're hanging out, and his son comes out, and grandma's hanging out with my girls, and he says, grandma, I know you don't want me to get a tattoo, and you've been all angry about it, but Uncle Matt's got some tattoos, and he's a preacher man. Now, he thinks he's got a great slam dunk argument at this point. And she just, Grandma just pats him on the knee and she says, Sweetheart, I love Uncle Matt, but I have known him his whole life and I don't want him to be your example. (laughs) Which was a good point. I actually agreed with that point. But I bring that up to say, when we go back to where we grew up, when we go back and interact with our families, maybe this happened to you at Thanksgiving or Christmas, without realizing it, without intending to, often we find ourselves kind of falling back into what we would call our relational. We find ourselves kind of falling back, even if we don't want to, into maybe a style of relating that we grew up in and we may not even like anymore. Oftentimes it can even be very dysfunctional. And we see something similar happening in our passage today. Jesus and his disciples are going back to have, in essence, a homecoming. And he goes to his local synagogue. And you expect, based on his um, popularity and the fact that word has spread about all the amazing, grace-centered, merciful things he's doing, that there would be a big celebration. You expect it would be different than the first time he spoke in his hometown church. We read this earlier in Mark 3. It says that when Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat, His family heard it, and they went out to seize him, and they said, he is out of his mind. Now, early on, we think, okay, he just started his ministry. This was all new. But now there's a lot of evidence and data. They've kind of heard the reports about Jesus. And so the assumption is he comes back, and it's going to be time to celebrate. Because it tells us when he comes back to his hometown synagogue, and he begins to teach, and the people were astonished. And they're identifying, where did this man learn all of these things? Where did he get such wisdom? And not just wisdom and teaching, but how is he able to do so many mighty works? And then you would think, okay, it's going to be time now for celebration. What what exactly is going on? Well, Jesus has been, you know, really intentional about not telling people that he was the long-awaited Messiah, especially in different Jewish contexts mainly because they misinterpreted that to only mean he's come to be a political hero and to punish our enemies. And so he stands up this day, and Mark, who's usually brief, doesn't tell us the details, but Luke 4 tells us that when Jesus preached that day in his hometown church, he read multiple passages from the prophet Isaiah that that talked about the Messiah who would come. And Jesus read all these prophecies, and then he said to them, not in a weird, confusing parable, but as simply as possible, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the long-awaited Messiah, the one that you've been praying for every single week, the one that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, our people has been hoping would come. Now, what I expect would happen at this point is they would do like what we would do in Mullins if somebody made it big. There's actually a kid who played at South Carolina this year that's about to get drafted in the NFL, and Splinter was telling me this week that a lot of the local kids are buying his jersey. And if he gets drafted, they'll probably name a road after him and they'll put a sign when you drive into town, the home of Xavier Leggett, NFL player, because that's what we do, right? When someone we know 
um, from a small town or just where we grew up makes it big, we want to grab onto that notoriety. But the opposite actually happens here with Jesus. Instead, in verse 3, it says that they respond after declaring, how can he teach with such wisdom and do such mighty works? Wait a minute. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? We know his brothers and his sisters. And then it says they took offense at him. The Greek term translated offense is actually the term to be scandalized. It says that they were deeply scandalized by Jesus. And in Luke 4, it tells us that they were so angry that they drove him out of town to um, a cliff and tried to kill him. So obviously, we should step back and say, well, wait, what, what, what was so scandalizing about this? How did they not celebrate and rejoice that a, you know, just a, a guy from our hometown has now been revealed to be the long-awaited Messiah why is this not a cause for celebration? What appears clearly that there were two things that deeply scandalized them about Jesus. And the first was that he was so ordinary and lowly. There was nothing spectacular about him. And secondly, they were scandalized by the focus of Jesus's message, which is that all people, not just their enemies, all people need to repent and so the first thing, they were scandalized by his ordinariness. Verse 3, is not this the carpenter? Instead of being amazed at what God is doing supernaturally through him, they were shocked and even scandalized that this ordinary, lowly guy who had grown up in their community fixing farm equipment would now have the audacity to say he is the long-awaited Messiah. He had never stood out as a potential Messiah. Maybe he was a good kid that didn't cause much trouble, but he was definitely nothing special. From their perspective, he probably wasn't even as special as his cousin, John the Baptizer, who had a powerful ministry right outside of Jerusalem. So instead of his ordinariness being an encouragement, saying, wait, we can relate to God better, knowing that he actually can relate to us, instead they despised him for this very fact. Now, this may not shock us the way it did then, but I would argue that there's actually a lot of this that happens in our culture. Listen to what Michael Horton said. This is the quote on the front of your bulletin. He says, ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary today. Who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary. Who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church, has ordinary friends, and works an ordinary job? Our life has to count. We have to leave our mark have a legacy, make a difference. And all of this should be something that can be managed, measured, and maintained. We have to live up to our social media profile. And then as an expert theologian, he adds, this is just a newer version of salvation by works. He goes on to say, over time, the hype of living this way, living a new life, taking up a radical calling, changing the world, can creep into every area of our life and make us tired, depressed, and mean. Now, maybe that resonates with you more than you realize. Maybe that's the very reason God brought you here today, was to invite you to admit, I am absolutely exhausted because I've been trying and trying and trying and trying to prove that I'm significant, that I'm worthy, that I have value by being extraordinary. And if that's where you are today, I have good news because Jesus, our ordinary and lowly Savior, says this, you can come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now back to our passage. Not only do they seem to be offended by the fact that Jesus would make these claims and he was so common and ordinary, but they go on to say, isn't this the son of Mary? We know who this is. Now, again, that doesn't jump out to us. It sounds like just a reference that we know who this guy is. But all scholars highlight that in this culture, children were always referenced as being the son of whoever their father was, even if the father was dead. And so this is clearly a jab at Jesus because everyone in his small town would have known that when Joseph and Mary got married, she was already pregnant. And if she just went around her hometown village and said, it's okay, I know we're not married yet, but we haven't been having sex outside of marriage. The Holy Spirit gave me this baby. The Messiah is coming in my womb. Not only would they have thought she's crazy and maybe tried to chain her up in a cemetery like the demoniac, but they would have probably stoned her to death for being heretical. So clearly this is a jab of how could this ordinary, common, lowly guy claim to be the Messiah? And we kind of know his background and the scandalous nature of his birth He's kind of beneath our dignity level of how we culturally determine who's good and who's bad. This isn't acceptable at all. The main thing I want us to notice, if all of this sounds like, how does it relate to me, is here's the main point. When God showed up in the flesh and declared good news to them, they did not receive it. Not only did they not receive it, they wholeheartedly rejected it and hated him. Why? because he did not meet their cultural expectations about what God had to be like. It would be so easy for us to say, they're so foolish. Why couldn't they just pay attention to the wisdom and the works that testified he was in fact who he said he was? We know Ecclesiastes 1 says, there's nothing new under the sun. That there is a sinful aspect of all of our hearts that does the same thing. And I've told this story numerous times, but when God began to really pursue my heart after college, one of the primary things that he did to awaken me to reality, in essence, was putting me in a Bible study with someone who really loved me and was gracious. And when we were studying the book of Romans, I would argue, I don't think that's true. I don't think that's how God can act. I'm not sure. And finally, my friend who was leading the Bible study leaned over and said, Matt, here's what you need to understand. You call yourself a Christian. But almost everything you believe about God isn't actually in the Bible. And and you know what? I was offended at the moment, but but he was right. Like God absolutely used that to really challenge and awaken my heart. The people in Jesus' hometown had grown up praying and reading the prophecies of Isaiah. Some that said this, who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. These are prophecies about the coming Messiah. And they week after week would read and claim and pray that those prophecies would come true. And then when Jesus showed up with no beauty or majesty, not only did they not desire him, they despised him. And so there's a deep danger for all of our hearts. I would love to tell you that over 20 years ago when my friend said, Matt, most of what, almost everything you believe about God isn't in the Bible, that boom, I was cured. 
all my cultural biases about God, when he said, almost everything you believe about God um, is not in the Bible. It's a reflection of Mullen, Southern, Bible Belt, white, Republican, conservative, hardworking, blah, blah, blah. Will you fill in the blank? It's not even remotely in the Bible. And we, and we know this is true kind of culturally for us as Americans. The Barna research study shows, sadly, all the time, close to 76% of American church members believe that the statement, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. And not only is it not in the Bible, it's the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Like God doesn't help those who can help themselves. He helps those who are spiritually dead, whose only hope is in his grace and in his mercy. One of the things that as elders and pastors we hear on a regular basis is people, you know, saying things such as, well, I don't believe God could do or be or, you know, think, fill in the blank. And it may be a theological thing such as predestination. No, God can't, salvation can't be based on election. Well, why not? Well, that's not fair. I'm an American. I get to choose. We can't baptize babies. Well, why not? Well, because they don't get to choose yet. They don't even know what's happening. That can't be right. I don't agree with that. Well, we can't do like church membership or church discipline. Who, who is somebody else to judge you? We can't do that. And you may say, well, the sad thing about it is most of the time these arguments aren't really coming from help me understand how this lines up with this other area of scripture. It's more, here's what I believe and know to be true. Therefore, God has to submit to kind of my standard or my law. There's no way God could hold this particular view of homosexuality, LGBTQ, sex outside of marriage. That's ancient and old-fashioned. We now know better than to think that he could hold that position. Now, don't get me wrong. There's lots of um, theological gray areas, we would say, that people can have different opinions on baptism and other things. Please don't misunderstand me. But my point is, is that when we take a posture of God can't fill in the blank, we are in a danger dangerous place. Now let's get more serious about the heart level things that we have issues with, not really predestination or baptism. God can't actually be serious and expect me to forgive my enemies. If he knows what he did or she did to me, there's no way he would actually expect me to forgive them and move towards them. God must be crazy to think that I would be open-handed and generous to anyone in need that 10% giving away my tithe would be the starting point for generosity in the Christian life with the money that I've earned? Let's not foolishly think, gosh, these people that were in Jesus' home church that wanted to kill him, what is their problem? But say, Lord, I need you, especially in areas where I'm struggling or I'm angry or I'm tempted to want to reject these beliefs. I need you to grant me the gift of humility, Help me to submit to your word. Listen to how Tim Keller says it so well. This is in his book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. He says, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility or crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your guide can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage will you know that you've gotten hold of a real guide and not a figment of your imagination. An authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. 
So listen, if you're here today, and especially if you're angry and offended by any reference I just made, on the one hand, I would say good, not because I just want you to be offended, but at least you're paying attention and listening. The most dangerous, damning thing is for you to be lukewarm and not even care. But before you just reject and leave and say, I don't care, I would really encourage you to consider reaching out and saying, I'd love to meet with someone, namely someone who's older and wiser than me, who maybe holds a different position, especially that maybe grew up in a different cultural context than I did, and just be open to the possibility that God wants to meet you and reveal things to you. Because he really can. Like Palmer, you gave me that book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, right? For the sake of time, I try to be efficient. I could have had like 30 quotes out of that, of how much we misread through Western eyes, through our own context, our own family dynamics, our own story. And so there's a great opportunity to humble yourself and say, Lord, will you please teach me what's true and help me to seek to submit to it, even if it's really hard. And that's the other thing that was, that was so hard for them. You know, if our passage just ended here and, and Jesus marveled at their own belief and just left, it would be really discouraging. But thankfully it says, even though he marvels at their unbelief, he went about among the villages teaching. And so the question is, well, what did he continue to teach? Well, he essentially taught the same thing over and over and over again. We see this in Mark 1. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the gospel. Gospel literally means good news. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, Jesus just went around to surrounding villages saying, here's the good news. God has sent a savior who that if you will humble yourself and receive from him, he will save you from your sins. He won't help you save yourself, but he will save you from your sins. Now you may say, why was that offensive? How was that not just good news? How was that not the greatest news we've ever heard in the whole world? Well, the reason it's offensive, especially to his hometown, is because he made it clear all people need to repent. There's not a selection of good people over here, which is what we tend to put ourselves in, the category of I'm a good person because this is the cultural rules and narratives about being a good person that I grew up in. And here's all the bad people that think differently, vote differently, dress differently, whatever, act differently than me. But Jesus was like, hey, across the board, salvation is by grace to all who repent. And they hated that message. They were infuriated by it. Notice that Paul in Romans 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it alone is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew, but also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You know, and Paul says that, and a couple chapters later, he has to tell them, and this is what Charlie referenced, you know, in, in his story about the, the young lady that came to the RUF campus ministry Bible study and heard this in Romans 3. Paul says, what then are we Jews any better off? Now, what of their knee-jerk reaction have been? The same as Jesus' home church. Heck, yes, we're better off. We're better off than all the Gentiles and all the people who don't go to church. And just as a side note, when my friend told me, Matt, everything you believe about God isn't in the Bible, it was reading this very passage. I interrupted him when he was reading this. And I would have said, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then he's reading this passage. I'm like, hold up, that's not true. I'm trying to be good. I'm the only one in my family going to church. I'm trying to live a good life. He's like, hold up, let's, let's finish reading. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. 
No one is righteous, not one. No one understands and seeks God. All have turned aside. No one does good. And he, and he summarizes it in verse 22. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That, that was the passage that God used to lead him to lovingly say what you believe about God isn't actually in the Bible, but here's a good invitation for you. If you'll humble yourself and acknowledge that you're really not a good guy, that what you deserve is for God to punish you for all eternity because of your selfishness and sin, but you come to Jesus and realize that he loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine and that he willingly did everything necessary to make you his son, you can have salvation and everlasting life. This is why Jesus consistently preached a message of repentance and faith as the foundation for the Christian life. As Martin Luther said in his first theses that said about the Protestant Reformation, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the entire Christian life was to be one of repentance. In Luke 13, Jesus says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, the reason that this is so offensive, and it was so particularly offensive to Jesus' um, hometown and home church, is because they didn't see themselves really needing grace to that degree. Our community group last year studied Tim Keller's um, book on Jonah. It is absolutely phenomenal. If you're not familiar with Jonah, he was a prophet to God's people in the Old Testament. He was very famous. They loved him. Most of his ministry had been about promoting kind of, you know, Jewish nationalistic causes, expanding the territory. And then God says, hey, I actually want you to go to the Ninevites, this terrorist state, and I want you to preach to them. And he was like, you got to be kidding me. There's no way they don't deserve it. So he tries to flee, gets swallowed by a well, ends up going back. He pouts and is angry when they repent, and he actually wants to die. And listen to what Keller says. This is... Gosh, this is so convicting. And when I read Jonah, I can insert my own name. Jonah wants a God of his own making, a God who simply smites bad people, for instance, the wicked Ninevites, and blesses the good people, for instance, Jonah and his countrymen. But when the real God, not Jonah's counterfeit, keeps showing up, Jonah is thrown into fury or despair. Unless Jonah can see his own sin and see himself as living wholly by the mercy of God, he will never understand who God actually is. And this, in essence, is what Jesus continued to invite people to do, to repent, to believe the good news of the gospel, not the cultural expectations, nationalistic causes that they tried to cram Jesus into he invited them to trust in him alone to do everything necessary to bring about their salvation. And how was he going to actually do that? By scandalously becoming even more lowly than he already was, more lowly than they could ever have imagined. Chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man would suffer many things and even be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days, he would rise again, and he said this to them plainly. Which, again, should not have been a surprise to anyone, even though if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know Peter and others were like, wait a minute, wait a minute, that can't happen. The thing we need most is for you to exert your political dominance and power. We can't have you dying. 
But Isaiah said that he would be despised and rejected. The Savior will be a man of sorrows who's acquainted with suffering. He will be one from whom we hide our faces. He would be despised and we would esteem him not, but he would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. We would esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him the chastisement that brings us peace. It is through his wounds that we will be healed. For all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one we have turned to our own way, and the Lord chose to lay all our iniquity upon Jesus, our Savior. See, the good news of the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus, the average ordinary carpenter from a small town called Nazareth, died a below average death of spiritual condemnation and public humiliation to save sinners like me and like you if we will simply believe and receive it. And what would it look like if we actually believed it and sought to live it out? Well, the rest of our passage gives us in essence an overview. Then God would invite us to participate in this ordinary but amazing work of going out and telling other people the good news about Jesus, inviting them to repent and believe the gospel. Now you may say, that was his disciples, and that's encouraging to hear that they went out and they had power to cast out demons and to invite people to believe in Jesus. It's even exciting for Charlie to be in New Mexico doing that because he went to seminary, but that can't be true of me. Let me tell you something. The means that God uses to advance his kingdom are the weak and ordinary men and women who belong to Jesus. One of my favorite passages in the book of Acts, which is really like uh, just a collection of stories of the Holy Spirit changing the world and the church just exploding after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. It says that Peter and John um, were on trial for the gospel in Acts 4. And it says, when all the people there saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, that they were common, ordinary men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. My favorite Christmas movie by far that I can't watch without weeping is It's a Wonderful Life. I'm not sad if it's a spoiler alert. The thing came out in like 1945. You've had plenty of time to watch it. But you know, George Bailey, his dream is to leave the small, ordinary town of Bedford Falls and do something extraordinary. Travel the world, do something amazing. And over and over and over again, like Providence continues to place him in an ordinary job, ordinary town, ordinary family, ordinary house, and he feels like a failure until he's given the amazing gift to see the impact he's had in his community through ordinary daily means of being a loving neighbor. And he's changed the entire community. Oh, that that would be true of us if we lay down this pursuit of I have to do something extraordinary to be loved by God and my neighbor but I actually can be loved by the ordinary lowly savior Jesus to such a degree that I live with a heart of contentment and generosity and joy. And I go out each and every day in our community right here, seeking to love and care for my neighbors in extraordinary ways. It will be pretty amazing to experience and to be a part of. And that's what we're invited to. Even today, as he invites us to come take an ordinary meal of bread and wine and trust that by his spirit, he does supernatural things as he sets it apart. And so I'm actually going to pray. Tripp's going to set up communion for us because Charlie and I have to leave and go to the airport. 
I love y'all. This isn't a peace out because I don't want to talk to anybody afterwards. <laughs> so let me pray. Lord Jesus, we know that in your word, it tells us the whole law is fulfilled in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us with a never-ending, never-stopping, always and forever love, a love that was so great that you allowed your body to be broken and your blood to be shed so that we could be redeemed. Lord, we confess what you clearly know about us, and that is we often just want to cram you into a box, a cultural box that affirms you really like the things that we like and hate the things that we hate, but we know that the thing we need most is to repent and trust you for salvation and for life. And so I pray now as we come to this table that you'll set apart these elements from their normal use to their holy use, that you'll use them to strengthen and nourish our hearts so that we can receive and rest upon you alone for salvation. And we pray that in Christ's name, amen.